So I wanted to pop on today and talk with uh, whoever cared to listen about John Calvin. And I really appreciate Joshua Torrey sparking this idea in my mind, and I hope he gets the chance to watch. I'm going to link to him uh, later on when I post this on YouTube. But I'm going to talk about John Calvin. I'm going to do three of these videos over the course of the next little bit, and I'm going to upload them on YouTube afterwards. Um, the first of the ones that uh, I'm going to do on Calvin today is on my time with Calvin. In other words, uh, what, what place has Calvin had in my life? And it turns out it's been a pretty important uh, and significant place in my theological life and development over the last uh, 16 years that I've been formally studying uh, theology. So I'm going to talk about that today, uh, and then I'm going to have two more sessions where I dive further into the actual content of Calvin's theology and uh, talk about that a bit for folks and try to give a sense of um, how I read Calvin and what I think is important there. And hopefully we'll be able to take some questions along the way if you want to punch those into Periscope here. I'm never sure if um, I'm doing things right to see any comments that might be coming in, but hopefully I am. So, my time with Calvin. Well, uh, I started reading Calvin uh, in the last millennium, which is kind of uh, a fun thought, a fun thing to say as well. I started reading Calvin in the last millennium. I think it was back in 1999 or 2000 when I got my first copy of the Institutes, and it's still the copy that I use today. I've got it right here. Some of you may recognize this older edition of the McNeil Battles uh, version of the Institutes. This is the first volume. And uh, mine comes with this nice uh, hard cloth blue with gold embossed uh, binding. And one thing that's unique about my copy, I haven't seen it in any other copies, but I don't know if you can see. If you look, the, this is the very top, and you see the pages, the top of the pages are dyed blue to match the cover. So here's the back side, and that's just the normal cover, color of the pages. But up here at the top, it's dyed blue, kind of like you would see uh, in some hymnals or something uh, in your church. I've never seen another copy of the Institutes like this. I've had other uh, copies of this edition in my hand with the, with the binding and, and the paper uh, and so on, but never with that blue top. So that's, uh, if anybody else has seen that, I'd love to hear about it. I've never uh, heard of that. But I got this when I was still in high school and started reading it. And uh, very quickly, Calvin became the dominant theological influence in my life. And I, I like to joke around and say that I only ever came to Bard because I first uh, was so immersed in Calvin. So uh, being a Bardian for me is, in many ways, just another way to be a Calvinist. And uh, that, you know, depending on who you say that to, it upsets them for any number of reasons. So that's probably why I like to keep saying it. But that's how I think about it. And that gives you some idea of how I read Calvin. So uh, I started reading Calvin, like I said, in high school. I went off to um, college and studied Bible and theology there. And in the spring of 2014, uh, I had spring break. And it was my last, not 2014, I'm sorry, 2004. <laughs> 2004, the spring of 2004. I had a spring break and nothing to do. I was staying in uh, town, not going home or anything like that. And uh, I was married at the time, that last semester during my undergrad. 
and uh, my wife was working. So I just had this spring break in our apartment with nothing to do. And like a good theology nerd, I decided that I was just going to sit for that whole spring break and read Calvin's Institutes, all 1,800 and some pages uh, in the two volumes of that McNeil and Battles edition that I was just showing you. And so that's what I did for spring break that year in 2004. I read through the whole thing. Uh, the first couple hundred pages went really well. It was a lot of fun. Uh, in the middle there, it got pretty tedious. Uh, but then when the last couple hundred pages were in sight, it sped up again. And uh, by the time I got done with it, uh, I was tired. Um, but this kind of was the first time that I had ever blitzed uh, a big section of a theological text like this. And some of you who read my blog, The Evangelation Theologian, um, and have read for a long time know that when I was working on my doctoral dissertation, uh, I did something similar with Bart. I sat down and over the course of three weeks did nothing but read through volume four of the Church Dogmatics. But before I did that with Bart, I did it with Calvin and the Institutes. So along the way, I uh, picked up a set of Calvin's commentaries uh, and have been reading in those and slowly my Calvin library has grown. I went to uh, Princeton to do my Masters of Divinity and my doctoral work. And there I had a chance to study uh, Calvin with uh, three different professors who each left a bit of a mark on how I read him. Elsie um, McKee uh, from Princeton taught a master's level seminar on Calvin and then also a doctoral level seminar on Calvin. And I was fortunate enough to be able to take both of those. She's an excellent teacher and really knows the history of Calvin and Geneva cold. She's just recently, a year or two ago, come out with a huge, almost like thousand page book on Calvin and looking really at the practical issues of Calvin's ministry in Geneva, figuring things out like um, how many times a week was Calvin preaching and at what time of the day and in which of the different churches in Geneva and while Calvin was preaching who was preaching other places and so on. So she's done a lot of that super careful work also really careful work on the consistory and I learned a great deal from her and I learned to read Calvin uh, in his historical context uh, quite a bit from studying with her. But then also Bruce McCormick and George Hunsinger are both readers of Calvin from a more uh, theological side and in different seminars and things I got to read Calvin with them as well and they've kind of shaped how I read Calvin uh, theologically and not just uh, historically. So I uh, continued to read Calvin all the way through my formal theological education and then I got here to Lindenwood in oh gosh what was it 2011 and um, one of the teaching assignments that fell to me in my department was the Reformation class which I was very excited about. It's still one of my favorite courses to teach. And in that course, I've, I started off spending six weeks on Calvin. I've got it cut back to about four now, just trying to cram enough other stuff in, but still a significant chunk, nearly a third of that course I spend really taking uh, time with Calvin to read him and understand his historical context. Initially, um, maybe some of you have seen it, there's a little selection of the institutes that McNeil did. It's only about 200 pages long, it's pretty affordable, and initially that's what I used uh, to teach my students, but I kept finding passages in there that I wasn't happy with. He'd always stop before I thought he got to the best bits of the different passages that he was excerpting, so I gave up on that, and now what I do is I actually have my students, I can't tell if you can even read the title, but this is the 1536 
Institutes of the Christian Religion that Battles did uh, in the late 80s, I believe. And so this is the very first edition of the Institutes. The one I was showing you uh, earlier, if you don't know, is from the 1559 Latin edition, and that's kind of the last definitive edition, the last edition he did in Latin. He did one in French a little while after that. I think it was 61. But uh, the 59 is usually what um, people read for Calvin's theology. The 1536 is a lot, a lot uh, shorter. Uh, it was originally described as a handbook because you could keep it in your pocket and carry it around with you, and it gave you a basic theological orientation. So uh, it was written when Calvin was still very young, and uh, as I said, is much shorter, and so that's what I take my students through. It's also less distinctively Calvin. Uh, he's very reliant on Luther. He follows Luther's catechism uh, in many ways and how he structures his discussion in that book. So I, th I also think that's helpful for the kind of course that I teach to give them some Calvin that is both Calvin and not as uniquely Calvin as some of the uh, later stuff gets to be. It gives them a better flavor for Protestant theology as a whole. So uh, I've been reading the 1536 edition the last couple of years as I teach that class and take students through it. So that's been a lot of fun as well, getting to know different editions. Elsie uh, McKee, who I was talking about before, um, recently, or just a few years ago, uh, finally published a translation of the 1541 French edition. Hang on, I'll grab it. It's longer than the 1536. I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing yet. I have worked in different pieces uh, of it, and interestingly, it's a lot more accessible. When Calvin, he, he translated it, it into French himself, and one of his goals in doing that was to make it accessible for an audience that was not as scholarly. Uh, so there were plenty of folks, well not plenty, but there were a group of folks at the time who were wealthy enough and educated enough to read and write in French. Uh, but they weren't educated enough uh, to read and write in Latin. And so that more uh, medium-level audience is what Calvin was aiming at with the 1541 French edition. So I recommend that as well if you want to get in there and uh, you, you feel maybe uh, the 1559 edition of the, Cal of the Institutes is a little overwhelming, a little too technical, try the 1541. Uh, it's a bit more accessible. Uh, so that's a bit about uh, my background with Calvin. Um, in terms of formal education and teaching, those of you who uh, follow my blog know that I've also done a lot on There with Calvin. And I've done these series of, um, that I call Reading Scripture with John Calvin, where I work through different of his commentaries. And so far, I've gone through First Peter and through Malachi. I've got Malachi right here, and I marked out the pages. You can see, if you look carefully, kind of the, the amount uh, of this volume, which is uh, specifically the commentary on Malachi. It's about uh, 170 pages that he does on Malachi. And then this is the volume that includes 1 Peter. I marked that one out in here too. It's about 125 pages on 1 Peter. So uh, you can go to the serials index on uh, DET and check out those series. I'm not doing one of them right now actively, but I'm working my way through uh, the ecclesiological sections of Francis Turretin's Institutes of Eclectic Theology. This is one of the three volumes in that set. Now, the interesting thing about Turretin is toward the very end of Calvin's life, he finally realized what had been a dream of his since he first uh, went back to Geneva uh, after spending a few years at Strasbourg. 
And uh, ever since that time, he had wanted to found in Geneva an academy on the model of the academy at Strasbourg, which he had been lecturing in while he was there. And so he worked tirelessly toward that. And finally, in the very late uh, 1550s, in the very early 1560s, he was able to make that a reality due to um, historical and material circumstances uh, converging at the right time. And so he sets up this uh, academy in Geneva, and then, you know, he teaches there for the last few years of his life. His uh, successor, Theodore Beza, was the first principal there, or headmaster, if you prefer. I've been watching Harry Potter, so headmaster jumps to mind. Uh, but fast forward 100, 150 years, and you get kind of the theological peak of that Genevan Academy, the theological peak of the whole Genevan theological tradition of Reformed theology, and that's Francis Turretin, uh, the most notable scholastic who worked at that academy later on. So uh, some, I'm re reading a lot of Turretin right now, especially on the blog, but it keeps me kind of in the sphere of Calvin and Calvin's theology as well. So uh, that's the history of uh, Calvin and me and our uh, 16, 17 uh, year acquaintance uh, and uh, kind of my formal education in Calvin. But uh, what about my approach to Calvin? How do I read Calvin? Well, if you uh, read Calvin with any kind of uh, professional interest, I don't uh, claim to be a Calvin specialist in any way, but I'm a very interested uh, amateur. And anybody who works on Calvin at all has to um, deal with a debate surrounding Calvin's legacy. And really the question is, uh, what's the relationship between Calvin and the Calvinists that come later? Uh, you have people like Barth and people in Barth's camp who liked to drive a wedge between Calvin and the scholastic theology that came after him. And then you've got people like Richard Mueller, uh, who really wants to emphasize the continuity. And I'm one of those people who likes to plant themselves uh, somewhere right in the middle of that argument and say, uh, they're both right, but they're both overstating it. I think there are certainly things about Calvin that the thinkers that followed him lost. And I think there are certainly things about Calvin that the thinkers that followed him uh, built on and developed in continuity with them. Uh, but while I think a lot of the continuity can be demonstrated materially, I think there's something of Calvin's spirit that's missing from the quote-unquote Calvinists. And I think really what it is, is that uh, Calvin was deeply, deeply influenced by Renaissance humanism. And that humanism gave his theology a certain feel, a certain texture, a certain uh, sensitivity, a certain attention to the human experience, a certain existential quality, even, you might say. So one of my favorite secondary sources on Calvin is this book. For some reason, all the biographies of Calvin published lately have this picture of Calvin on it. Uh, Bruce Gordon's has this picture as well, but this is by Bernard Cotret, uh, a French uh, humanist himself, like Calvin. And to me, Cotret kind of gets Calvin at an intuitive level in a way that a number of other biographers don't. I'm not dissing Gordon or anybody else, but Cotret, I think, has a certain kind of um, empathetic connection with Calvin that's sometimes lacking say it's because they're countrymen, say it's because they're both humanists, whatever. But Cotre really brings out that humanist flavor to Calvin's life and theology that I think so easily gets lost in um, the Calvinists, so to speak. And um, another aspect of this is 
that a lot of the folks who want to stress continuity between Calvin and the Calvinists uh, leave out an aspect of Calvin's legacy. And Brian Garish, I think, is a figure who uh, really emphasizes that aspect of Calvin that often gets left out by those who want the continuity thesis. So this is a book by Garish. It's called Grace and Gratitude. It's specifically about Calvin's Eucharistic theology. And also Garish uh, more recently published a book called The Christian Faith. And in that book, it's kind of a systematic theology sketch, but he takes as his primary conversation partners Bar uh, Calvin and Schleiermacher. And to anybody who works on Calvin, at least not at the level of specialist or super interested amateur, it's not necessarily obvious that Calvin and Schleiermacher should go together. But in fact, uh, Calvin heavily influenced Schleiermacher. And so if you read Calvin in such a way that you can account for Charles Hodge, but you can't account for Schleiermacher, you're doing something wrong. And that's what I think Garish and Garish's work brings out uh, so clearly. And it's really interesting if you look in the, um, what's he call it, the preface to this book, Grace and Gratitude, uh, Garish tells how originally this book came as a series of lectures that he presented in Edinburgh. And Bruce McCormick, who I mentioned earlier, he was one of my teachers at Princeton, uh, was there to hear the lectures and uh, pointed out that Garish had presented in the lectures, quote, a Schleiermacherian's Calvin, in other words, a vision, of, a picture of Calvin uh, viewed from the perspective of Schleiermacher. And Garish, uh, in the preface, says, you know, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that's exactly right, and that's a good thing. As McCormick would also agree. So, uh, when it comes to the whole continuity thesis thing, I think there are some things that are lost in Calvin's legacy and influence and significance is a lot bigger. You can't just nail it down to what goes by Calvinist. So you've got to bring in that uh, side of classic uh, theological liberalism to Calvin's legacy as well. You have to pay attention to the humanism. And for my money, you also have to read Calvin as a proto-dialectical theologian. Uh, and there's a couple different reasons why I think that's important. One of the uh, key features of dialectical theology is trying to understand uh, God, trying to speak of God, uh, describe uh, the significance of God for human life uh, out of the event of faith. So something happens to you and you believe, and what does that mean? That's kind of the, the thought progression that gets dialectical theology off the ground. And in Calvin's commentary on Romans, uh, he kind of gets at something very similar to this. I would call it something like a cross-modal similarity. Calvin's doing a very similar thing in different kinds of words. And uh, what we find, if we attend to his Romans commentary, is that Calvin has a soteriological concentration in much the same way that dialectical theology does. In other words, it comes out of that experience of salvation. That's kind of the key ground to his whole theology. Uh, Spijker, uh has uh, a short book on Calvin that's been translated into English, and he makes this point as well. He argues that the unifying center of all Calvin's thought is soteriology. So here I've got Calvin's Romans commentary, and uh, at the beginning of Calvin's commentaries, he has this section that he calls the argument, and basically he's going to sketch for you in those sections uh, an overview of what he thinks this book of scripture is doing. So when he's doing this for the book of Romans, uh, this is what he has to say. 
The main subject of the whole epistle, the whole book of Romans, is justification by faith. And then he says that the subject can be stated thus, that man's only righteousness is through the mercy of God in Christ, which being offered by the gospel is apprehended by faith. So he's talking about that moment of faith, that experience of faith, that when faith apprehends the salvation that God offers in Christ. It's important to remember how imp the significance of this Roman commentary for Calvin. It was the first commentary he ever wrote. Uh, it was published, I believe, in 1540, 1541, but it was written in 1539, or primarily written while he was in Strasbourg. And uh, it actually drove the first revision of the Institutes. So he publish, uh, publishes a revised version of the Institutes in 1539. And uh, the secondary literature makes clear that what Calvin is doing in that second edition, uh, one of the main things he's doing is he's bringing his Institutes in line with the mo theological model of uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans. So he's been studying the book of Romans and he's thinking to himself, hey, this is really the model for how theology needs to be done. I'm going to go back and revise my little handbook to make it fit this pattern. So in the 1536, Calvin very much follows Luther's shorter catechism as a model in terms of uh, what goes where, what gets discussed in what order. But then in 1539, he's much more tracking with the order of Paul's discussion in the book of Romans. And so when Calvin's telling us that the book of Romans is all about soteriology, it's all about the apprehension of justification through faith, what he's telling us then is that this is uh, a core feature of his theology, something that he wants to put front and center from 1539 onward in the Institutes. And so uh, we see that soteriological concentration that has a great deal in common with dialectical theology. But not only that, there's the most one of the most famous lines of all Calvin's theology right at the beginning of the Institutes. Uh, if you know the Institutes, you know that they begin with a letter uh, to King Francis I of France, uh, a dedicatory letter. And after that, when he gets into Book 1, uh, on the knowledge of God the Creator, and then Chapter 1, the knowledge of God and that of ourselves are connected and how they're interrelated, right? So he's saying there's knowledge of God, there's knowledge of human beings, knowledge of ourselves, kind of existential knowledge of human nature, and he wants to say they're interconnected. And now here's the famous line. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds... Which one precedes and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. So knowledge of God, this kind of existential knowledge of human nature, these things go together. And Calvin says you can't really tell which one comes first. If you think about it, uh, in terms of 20th century theology, this kind of encapsulates the debate between Karl Barth and Rudolf Bultmann, the two uh, main figures in founding uh, the dialectical theology movement. 
Barthes kind of emphasized knowledge of God coming before this kind of existential knowledge. Bultmann kind of emphasized the existential knowledge as the ground and foundation and source for that knowledge of God. And Calvin here is telling us these things need to be held together in a dialectical tension. You can't tell which one comes before the other. And as he goes on, he'll say, well, sometimes it looks like the one comes first, and sometimes it looks like the other comes first. But then he ends this first chapter of the Institutes by saying, yet, however the knowledge of God and of ourselves may be mutually connected, the order of right teaching requires that we discuss the former first and proceed afterwards to treat the later. In other words, yeah, Calvin discusses knowledge of God before he discusses this kind of existential knowledge of human existence. Uh, but for Calvin, this is just a teaching order. This is what he thought in his time and place needed to be said first and needed to be said second. But in actual fact, these two things go together and cannot be divided and separated. And that is the core of dialectical theology.